Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Well, my friends, we have reached the end. Part 8 of our Bruce Springsteen series, 20th Century Boss. You may recall a couple weeks ago we pulled out in the lonely cool before dawn. Our intention was to get out of this town full of losers and we were going to win. And how were we going to win? We were going to win by walking through Bruce Springsteen's discography, album by album, in the first part of his career from the early 70s up through the 90s. And we are now at the point where we have reached the 90s. Bruce in the 90s is the name of this episode. And for some of you, this might be a weird point to end on. Because again, the goal was to pull out of this town full of losers and, and win, Right? You know, just like in the song Thunder Road. And the 90s for Bruce is not really uh, synonymous with winning. You know, in this episode, we're, we're going to be talking about three records. We're going to be talking about Human Touch and Lucky Town, both of which were released on March 31st, 1992, and The Ghost of Tom Joad, which came out on November 21st, 1995. Now, the 90s are easily the least well-regarded decade of Bruce's career. His reputation during this time is so poor that people tend to skip from born in the USA in the mid-80s up through to the rising in early 2000, like if they're doing retrospectives of, of his career. If people make note of this period at all, it's to illustrate how far Bruce fell without the E Street Band, who finally reunited with the boss at the end of the decade to great acclaim and popular excitement. And of course, they've remained with Bruce ever since. And yet, I've always had a soft spot for 90s Bruce Springsteen. This period coincides with my coming of age as a music fan. Bruce, of course, had been a fixture in my life since born in the USA in 1984 when I was six years old or so. But it wasn't until the 90s that I started to become a true hardcore fan and dig deep into Bruce's catalog. For fans of my generation, Human Touch and Lucky Town were the first big new Bruce Springsteen albums of their lives. And yes... Of course, they are among the weaker entries in his catalog. Human Touch in particular is an album that seems deeply confused about what it is supposed to be. Bruce himself didn't have a clear idea of what Human Touch should stand for thematically when he was making it. Is Human Touch supposed to be a big-time superstar mainstream rock record? Or is Human Touch supposed to be a middle-aged singer-songwriter album permeated with language gleaned from the therapy sessions that Bruce was now utilizing to ease his troubled psyche? When you listen to the album now, you know, 25 plus years later, the answer to those questions doesn't seem any clearer now than it was in 1992. The other album, Lucky Town, in my view, is much clearer and stronger. Whereas Human Touch took more than a year to make, Lucky Town was knocked out in a matter of a few weeks, the result of a surplus number of songs that Bruce wrote when he was only intending to write one more track for Human Touch. While I'd never argue that Lucky Town is a masterpiece, it is much grittier and more moving than Human Touch, and it finds Bruce writing lovingly about his new life as a family man. Four years later, after some valleys, such as the relatively ho-hum response to Human Touch and Lucky Town, and some peaks, including winning an Oscar for writing Streets of Philadelphia, Bruce reemerged with perhaps the least commercially viable album of his career, The Ghost of Tom Joad. Now, I'll admit, The Ghost of Tom Joad took me a long time to appreciate. And even now, as someone who absolutely loves this record, I still think that Bruce's performances on the album and the way that he presents the instrumentation don't do the songs justice. If that's how you feel about this record, I highly recommend downloading a concert recording of Bruce's show in Dublin in 1996 during the Ghost of Tom Joad tour. Uh, for a long time, the show was available as a bootleg, but now you can actually go to the official Bruce Springsteen live recording site and download it. That recording made these songs come to life for me. While the album is quiet to the point of almost being non-musical in parts, 
with virtually no dynamics in how the songs are sung and played. On that live record, songs like the title track, Highway 29 and Straight Line, come to life while still feeling intimate enough to sound as though Bruce is playing them in your living room. As a piece of writing, Ghost of Tom Joad for me stands with anything Bruce has ever done. In fact, I sometimes wonder if the album would have actually worked better as a collection of short stories. That's how evocative and engrossing these songs are lyrically. While Ghost of Tom Joad wasn't a hit on the scale of Born in the USA, it was an absolute artistic triumph. And for me, it does represent a victory for Springsteen, proving that he was capable of moving forward in his career and past the kind of titanic success that destroys many artists in the long run. If not for the Ghost of Tom Joad, Bruce might not still matter today as a songwriter and performer. I'll admit, this was the hardest episode to find a guest for. It's very easy to find people who love Born to Run, or The River, or Nebraska. But to find people who are willing to revisit Human Touch, uh, that's a much taller order. Uh, fortunately, I was able to convince Tim Showalter to take on this task. In 2009, Tim released his first album under the name Strand of Oaks. Over time, like Bruce, he has evolved from being a moody folky to the maker of widescreen rock records like 2014's Excellent Heel and 2017's Hard Love. In early 2018, Tim put out a very good outtakes collection from Hard Love called Harder Love, uh, which has some amazing songs on it. Songs so great, I can't believe that they didn't make the original record. Tim and I uh, had a great experience revisiting these records. And I think you'll find that you know, again, unlike some of the other episodes that we've done where we've explored well-established masterpieces, that uh, revisiting these weaker entries in Bruce's catalog, certainly I would say Lucky Town and Human Touch are weaker albums, it's a pretty fascinating look at an artist who I think for a long time seemed infallible. Uh, sometimes I think in order to appreciate why an artist is really great, you have to look at their weaker moments and compare them to the albums you already know and love. Um, so I think this will be an opportunity maybe for a lot of fans to check out records that they haven't listened to in a long time and maybe gain a new appreciation for them. So here is me and Tim digging into Bruce in the 90s. So uh, before we get into it here, I feel like we have to uh, do like a quick sort of disclaimer here because, you know, when I had this idea to do a Bruce Springsteen series and, you know, talk to artists about his albums from the 20th century, uh, it was very easy to find people to talk about Nebraska. It was very easy to find people to talk about Darkness on the Edge of Town and Born to Run. Uh, there were no takers for 90s Bruce, no takers for Human Touch, Lucky Town, and Ghost of Tom Joad. So I approached Tim, and I said, hey, man, would you mind doing this? And it took some convincing, uh, yeah. especially on the Lucky Town Human Touch. I know you're a fan of Ghost of Tom Joad, and we're going to get into that. But like the, the sort of, I guess, acknowledged nadir of, of, of Bruce Springsteen is Human Touch and Lucky Town. I, I don't think you, you had even heard those records when I asked you to do it, but you are a nice guy, and you took one for the team. And I feel like, you know, we've talked a little bit uh, before, uh, you know, going on here. I know for me, like, I've, you know, I knew these records, I owned them, but I never, like, set myself to like seriously listening to them. And I have to say that I appreciate them more. I mean, I always liked Lucky Town, but Human Touch in particular, I think I have a new appreciation for. And it sounds like you have really, I don't know if you love these records now, but you've like dove in and you, it feels like yeah, it's been a self-discovery for you. The quality, I just, you know, first off, it's the podcast. I, you know, I'm a very, I'm a consistent listener, so I wasn't going to give you like my junior varsity <laughs> level uh, approach here. I, I just am a, a giant fan, so I kind of focused up, and I, I, I think I just texted you before we called. I have 12 pages of notes <laughs> that I've written over the course of the last 48 hours, and uh, because you know, it's for me, many Springsteen records are canon almost, like. It's it, they almost I can't really describe Nebraska anymore because I've talked about it so much. I've listened to it so many times, and you know those big ones, they're almost too familiar for me now. And I I kind of like this. It's it's more interesting for me to talk about these particular records because it's it's never it's it's all it's overlooked for me because 
I, I'm just with you. Like, I don't know about Lucky Town. We'll get into that. But Human Touch always just kind of had this uh, kind of similar vibe. It's like when Lou Reed did the Metallica record, kind of <laughs> just avoid at all costs, like, please, and please just avoid. But I, you know, we'll talk about it later. But I, it, yeah, like you, deep appreciation for it now. And, you know, of course we're going to appreciate Born in the USA. It's just an obvious thing. But it, it's, it's like the work to appreciate them almost feels much more rewarding at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the whole, you know, like, like 90s Bruce just in general here is a fascinating period to me because uh, it was really his wilderness period. You know, he put out three records that decade. Uh, Goes to Tom Joad, I think, is, is, is pretty well regarded. But certainly Human Touch and Lucky Town um, – you know, they didn't sell as well as previous Springsteen records. They were uh, pretty quickly dismissed at the time. And, and certainly, as you alluded to, subsequently, they have a pretty bad uh, reputation. Uh, before we get into, like, the specifics of these records, I'm just curious for, you know, looking at it in, in a broader sense. I mean, you and I are around the same age. So you know, we both sort of came of age in the 90s. As yeah. music fans, we were both into alt-rock at that time. I was a Springsteen fan from the time I was a little kid, so I I knew Human Touch and Lucky Town, and I appreciated them. I think at the time, but it wasn't cool to like Springsteen. Like I kind of had to hide it from my friends that I loved Springsteen in the '90s, because unlike say Neil Young or Tom Petty, those who are two artists of, like, of a similar generation, like they were more of the '90s, I think, than Springsteen was. Like Neil Young was like called the godfather of grunge you know what I mean? very much yeah actually it's interesting you said that because i have both those names written down in my notes as reference points to like how to kind of compare tom petty and uh neil young's career and kind of good fortune of not only did they put out incredible records like i was just looking up harvest came out the exact same year as uh lucky town and human touch right and and, you know, Neil was two years older than Bruce, you know, and it's an interesting age because Bruce was 43, I think, when this came out. Or yeah. He was born in, so, and Neil was 45. And it's a, you know, it, it, it was a strange waters for all of those artists to travel because how do you compete being 43 when Nirvana comes out? Right. And, you know, and not only that, 92, the top song of the year was, I'm too sexy. You know, it was a strange <laughs> time in pop music. You know, it was like, because grunge hadn't fully taken over, you know, and boys to men had hit, you know, and so it was like this kind of converging point, and it's a really interesting year, but, yeah, I, I always wondered, like, why didn't Bruce get that? And why, you know, and maybe it was the record they were putting out because, you know, Tom Petty put out Wildflowers in, what, 93? Six, 95 and that was yeah it was like 94 know, and then he had like you know full moon fever was like at the end of the 80s and then into the yeah. wide open was in there which had a lot of mtv hits and yeah um, and another reference point i had a lot was because uh, i had this general production of both records like and i have in my notes i just wrote cigarettes down <laughs> and i also wrote bolo ties not from texas and it just has that feeling of like people are smoking in a bar, you know, or at the studio, and it's kind of got that Alana Miles black velvet kind of uh, synthesized Americana, perhaps. Right. That feels really strange. And I don't think Neil or Tom fell into that hole. And unfortunately, I think Bruce did. Yeah, I mean, in the. Well, I think it's fascinating. I mean, because you know, I mean, let's get into Human Touch here because okay, what great. I think what I think is so interesting about Human Touch is you know Bruce starts making this record at the end of 1989, and he's working on it for a really long time. And Peter Ames Carlin, his book about Springsteen called Bruce, which I've referenced in other episodes, it talks about how at this time, you know, he was just recording without a real strong idea of like what his album was going to be. And mm -hmm. he worked on it for like 16 months or so, wrapped up in 91, held on to that record for another year after that. So it doesn't come out until I think, I think it was like March or April of 92. And in the yeah. meantime, he ends up doing Lucky Town really quickly 
in about a four-week span or so, because uh, he was going to write one more song for Human Touch, and it became this whole other album. So he has this really kind of lush, labored-over record that he's been working on forever, and then this sort of hastily recorded, more urgent, kind of more straightforward rock record uh, in companion with it. And, you know, we're talking about these production choices. You think about, like, when Human Touch was finished, like, you know, it would have been, like, I guess, mid-'91. At that yeah. point... Like, Nevermind hadn't come out. The first Pearl Jam record hadn't come out. Uh, Lollapalooza was just launching that summer for the first time. Uh, you know, like, the, that Metallica Black album <laughs> hadn't come out. Mm-hmm. All of these rock records that would come to define the sound of, like, alt-rock and, and sort of you know hard rock music of, like, the early 90s hadn't come out yet when Human Touch was done. And then the record comes out after all those things have happened. And, oh, yeah. And it's like... You, it, things the music just changed so quickly during the making of this album. I mean, you, you think like if if Bruce had done, in a way, what Neil Young did, which is you know you, you look at Harvest Moon or you know Ragged Glory or you know the albums that he was making in the early '90s, which are very much of a piece like with his '70s work. If Bruce had just made a record that sonically was like Darkness on the Edge of Town, just like a spare, mm. direct, yeah. hard-hitting record he would have sounded contemporary. Instead, he sort of made a late 80s idea of what a superstar record should be and then <laughs> waited forever to put it out. He waited until, you know, that music had already become dated already. Yeah, and I, you know, for, you know, and just to, like, in my own personal opinion, I actually, and it's interesting you said that he labored over human touch longer than Lucky Town, which I didn't know. I actually really like there's a, there's an element and kind of a, a effervescence to human touch that is kind of a a version of psychedelic that I thought like with the strange echoes on the voice kind of some of the vamps at the end and you know I had a touchstone of like I don't know if your listeners know who Chris Whitley is it was that you know it it was this kind of like you had synthesizers, but you were kind of from the bayou, and it was this strange mixture of heavily processed guitars. I mean, some of the guitars on Human Touch, I, I can't believe it. Sounds like robots are playing them. Like, well, what's an example? Like, what song would you say? Well, at the beginning of uh, what is it? Uh, is it what, the Human Touch is the first song, Soul Driver? Yes, like. Soul Driver is that weird chorus flange effect that is probably made with a rack mount uh, studio pedal that is the size of a refrigerator or something. Like, and it just, <laughs> I always think like, dude, you have your telly with you. Plug that into an amp directly, put a microphone on it, and record it the same way you did for Greetings from Asbury or whatever you were listening to, you know, whatever record from the time. But you know, like so many of those guys, I think this record is such an apparent, or both records are such an apparent problem that uh, I think a lot of those artists just were really excited to go into the studio and they listened to producers. And Bob Dylan probably went into the studio and he's like, I got these new songs. And, you know, before Daniel Lenoir, whoever did some of the 80s stuff, was like, oh, I've got these new synthesizers. I got these new drum machines and all these vocal effects. And I think they just went along with it. I don't know if they were that aware of the aesthetic choices that we're making because they probably seemed really fresh at the time to you know them being artists in the studio. Yeah, I mean, to me, it just sounds like a guy, and I think this is true also of his production team because he worked with John Landau and Chuck Plotkin, who were his co-producers on the you know the previous records. They were big parts. You know, John Landau, of course, was his manager and. Yeah. every record going back to Born to Run, but Chuck Plotkin kind of came into the picture in the 80s, and he was a big part of Born in the USA. You know, to me, Human Touch sounds like a record made by guys in their 40s who mm-hmm. have become tremendously successful uh, and, you know, don't necessarily feel connected to, like, what's going on in modern music. So, like, they kind of have an older idea of what a big time rock record should be like to me it seems like a very conscious attempt to make like well what does a hit record sound like you know because i mean yeah. cause that's what born in the usa was too i mean it was a conscious yep. effort to make a blockbuster record and you know dancing in the yep. dark was like a deliberate attempt to make a hit and 
at that point, Bruce was sort of connected enough to pop music to know like what a, a hit should sound like, and it, it worked. Whereas on Human Touch, not only was he maybe not as connected to that world anymore, he waited to put it out. And sort yeah, of dated and the, the music. Like, like, the, like, this, like this record could have come out in early 91 or maybe mid-91, and at, before grunge happens, before all these changes in music, and maybe at that time it wouldn't have seemed... Uh, you know, so so passe at that time. Yeah, because Tunnel of Love was '87, right? Yeah, and that that I almost it's it's funny that you don't judge Tunnel of Love for doing very similar production choices as these two because it felt appropriate for 1987. You know, it felt like people were listening to Tears for Fears or you know those big records, and but it, yeah, I just am I'm kind of astonished. I'm simple facts of like human touch was the first single and it's six and a half minutes long <laughs> and it really doesn't go anywhere. It's, I enjoy it. I think it feels, it feels pleasing to my ears, but you know, in six and a half minutes, I kind of thought you could do a little bit more Bruce, like what? And you know, I, I, it, it was just, you know, there was so many perplexing things that went on with these records. And, you know, I think about, uh, I went on Wikipedia, and there's a quote from Springsteen, and he says, let's see if I can find it. He said, um, let's see, I'm looking through my notes, I apologize. <laughs> Your 12 pages uh, of notes. Yeah, there's too many notes here. It was something about along the lines of, I don't want to, uh, oh, I'm sorry, there we go. Oh, here it goes. This is a quote from Bruce. He said, I tried writing happy songs in the early 90s, and it didn't work. The public didn't like it. And I think that's such a kind of like honest statement about, you know, maybe he was out of touch. He moved to California. You know, there was no E Street band, some people from the E Street band. And yeah, I think it really is the wilderness years, like you said. Like he just kind of, you know, and maybe he was having children at the time and Patty and him seemed pretty happy. So it's hard to judge an artist based off their own personal contentment. But I think even if you're happy, you can still make, you know, you can still make great art. And, you know, this human touch, you know, and I actually, I thought I was so ready to diss human touch when we got into this. And it felt, it felt weird. And it also feels like <laughs> the heavy presence of, how do you pronounce it? Roy Bitten or Roy Brit? Roy? I think it's Roy Baton. We can't. Roy Baton. I feel like he took about 500 grand and bought every digital synthesizer <laughs> and literally wrapped it out of the plastic, turned it on, hit the like tubular bells preset and just ran with it. Like, well, well, you know, like how he got involved was because Bruce was trying to write a new record and he had writer's block. He couldn't come up with songs. Oh, okay. So like he ran into Roy, Roy Baton moved out to LA, like didn't live far away from Bruce. And they went out to dinner one night and then Roy, told him that like I've got this home set up uh you know where I can record songs and he actually had recorded some demos including the song Roll of the Dice like he wrote the music for yep. that and he gave Bruce heard it and was like wow this is great I'm going to write a song to this so like they ended up co-writing that song and that's sort of the most sort of E Street band sounding song You're right record. I wrote that too It's it a very has E Street that sounding amazing- band yeah, kind of high piano part that right. we used to, and it's the almost great like, vamp at the end. Right. It's like a, I mean, the thing with Human Touch, we've been talking a lot of, about the production, and and uh, I sh- I want to say quick one more point about the production. Like, uh, there's a story in that Peter Ames Carlin book about Miami Steve hearing Human Touch before it mm-hmm. came out, and like like Bruce played on both records, and Bruce and and, and, and Miami Steve heard Lucky Town, and he was like, I like this record. This seems kind of raw and gritty, and I like this record, but when he heard Human Touch, he was like, you should re-record this album with the E Street Band. Like, it would sound a lot better with the E Street Band. And John Landau was basically like, no way, man. Like, we've already spent two yeah, years so and how much, much money. how much money we're not going to re-record this album. But, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot about the production. I think the problem with Human Touch, especially in comparison to Lucky Town, because I do think Lucky Town, for me, is an appreciably better album. And the difference is... I think Human Touch is the first Bruce album 
where there isn't like a major song on the record. Like you're the, right. Like there's songs on this record that I like. I mean, we've been knocking it. I kind of like. I mean, I, I like the song "Human Touch." I like "Soul Driver," especially if you hear there's a there's a. Uh, a, a, a concert from 1990 uh, that he performed as a benefit show, like in the LA area, that you can, you can buy it on the live Springsteen site. And he, he plays Soul Driver and he plays the song uh, Real World and mm, just by himself, yep. by himself. And it sounds great. Like they're good songs and they kind of get messed up on the record. That's a good song. I like this. I've always liked the song Gloria's Eyes. I mean, a lot, I mean, the only, to me, the only out and out clunker, like horrible, like, Cringeworthy <laughs> song on Human Touch is "Real Man." Oh, that's rough. The pen, that's, the penultimate song. Uh, I wrote Huey Lewis. <laughs> uh, it's 1992, Bruce. Like it feels like a, Huey Lewis wouldn't have put that on sports. Like absolutely not. I'm not putting this on my record. <laughs> yeah, it's like man. I didn't. It's like I'm pretty sure Bruce didn't do cocaine, but this sounds like no. a cocaine song. This sounds like you. Yeah. You're. Uh, you know, you were gacked out in the studio, and you thought, "Oh yeah, let's have really bright synths, and we're gonna get horns in here, but we're gonna make it sound like fake horns." You know, we're gonna make yeah. it sound like a beer commercial type song. Just like the thing that, like, the, the people that hate Springsteen and they like, uh, like the caricature in their mind, it sounds like real man. Like you know, exactly this, this like exactly. fake soulful, you know, meat and potatoes rock type thing. Which sounds horrible. Well, the problem with cocaine is not that I have any experience. Is uh, like the idea, like <laughs> when when one would be under the influence, it is not the best for records because it doesn't make you wild. It makes you clean, right? And it makes you really want stuff to feel very uh, like stable and bright. Like you said, bright and uh, almost like. Uh, you know, you want to like polish it one more time, one more time. And that's how you get that kind of, you know, that's how you got Tango in the Night or, you know, a lot of those records. You think like, why aren't they making stuff that sounds like the Sex Pistols? But actually, you know, and Bruce probably didn't do it, but I can guarantee you one of the engineers or somebody, <laughs> somebody working on that record was having some fun in 92 because it's extremely apparent. And, you know, another thing that I wanted, like, Bruce to do is this is an hour long record and it could have been a really good, like 32 minute long record, like cut a few out. And this is also, you know, lucky town and human touch and a lot of records of that era fell victim to the CD coming out. And I feel like record labels were saying, Hey, we got 90 minutes on this CD. Now it's not vinyl anymore. Like put some more songs, just put like dump, like the song "Cross My Heart" does not need to be on this record. It's <laughs> right. absolutely unnecessary, especially when it goes right into Gloria's eyes, and then you just start thinking, "I'm just listening to the same song over and over <laughs> and over again." Right. Well, I mean, there's there's the argument that's often made about these two albums that like he should have taken the best of Human Touch and the best of Lucky Town and made one record. And yes. I actually, well, I disagree with that. I think he should have just junked. Human Touch and put out Lucky Town because I actually do think Lucky Town is a good cohesive body of songs. And to speak to your point about the CD era, Lucky Town's only forty minutes, so yeah, exactly, it, it gets yeah. in and out. And like you know, Lucky Town isn't a masterpiece. It, it would have definitely been the weakest album that he had put out at that point. But it does seem like a pretty honest reflection of where he's at. He's writing songs about his kids, about his marriage, this sort of idea of like feeling grateful for who you are. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of talk about Bruce at this time. He was going through therapy for the first time in his life. So there's like self-help language that appears in a lot of the songs, you know, like uh, you can hear that in songs like better days and, uh, Leap of Faith and Living Proof, songs like that, um, on, on Lucky Town. But um, to me, I don't know. Like I, I understand why you put out two different records because I do think they are different enough where the songs wouldn't have worked. I think, I mean, he has said in interviews that like he had to write and go through the process of Human Touch to get to Lucky Town. And it does almost feel like... Good point. Uh, like sort of like a head-clearing exercise that it's like, yeah. okay... I had to write some maybe not great songs um, 
to get to these better songs. Because, um, you know, to get back to the point about there being no major songs on Human Touch, in, in my opinion, I think that there are some major songs on Lucky Town. And I would say, if I should yeah, fall behind... If yes. I sh- you know, which if I should fall behind, which is a song that appeared in E Street band shows uh, for years after that, "My Beautiful Reward" I think is a great song. I actually like the title song a lot. Um, it's sort yeah. of an Atlantic City type, you know, uh, narrative. You know, going to like Lucky Town. I, you know, it's sort of like the idea is he's going to gamble and kind of make his life better. There's sort of desperation in that song. Um, so those and and the rest of it, like there are no songs I dislike on Lucky Town. I think. There's some songs local that are hero. <laughs> I don't mind local hero. I wish I wish it didn't. You know, I wish uh, he had maybe just played that on an acoustic guitar or something. Like I think yeah. that would have been a good yeah. kind of like tossed off. Like having like the honking harmonica in there, and yeah. uh, you know, it doesn't need to be a big production. But um, there's, I mean, the thing with with a song like that though versus like Human Touch. Human Touch. Um, has it feels kind of stiff and humorless like lucky like local hero has a sense of humor to it at least it's a little loose which i appreciate i mean look at the cover i i i I, he's wearing sunglasses (laughs) i it just felt really strange to see this man this beautiful man that i've been you know so many covers and you know he's on the cover but he's wearing sunglasses and i couldn't get over it i was like and I think maybe I was reading into it too long or it was late at night, but I think that has some symbolic meaning of like, what is he, like, he's always staring, you know, the darkness cover, the, you know, Nebraska cover. He's always looking at you and he has this intense thing. And now that you brought up therapy and self-help and stuff, it's interesting that he chose to wear, or maybe it was just a sunny day in LA, but I... <laughs> I did find it really almost unsettling. The sunglasses felt unsettling to me, really. Well, and the font was atrocious, but that's right. all the story. Yeah, and he's like unshaven, and like he's got like yeah. one. He's got, I think he has two buttons buttoned uh, on his shirt. He's wearing a big chain. Yeah. I mean, like, what's more distressing to me, if we're going to talk about Bruce's <laughs> clothes at this time, is his habit of wearing the vest with no shirt on underneath. Yeah. Which is and very... I do that sometimes, so I can't, <laughs> can't blame the boss for that. <laughs> Are you wearing, like, a leather vest? I have a leather vest. I've yet to wear it. So oh, I'm, man. I'm... <laughs> because it's very Bon Jovi. I mean, it's almost, yes. like, Human Touch is almost like his Bon Jovi record. Yeah. Um, I mean, for sure. And, like... If I could give, you know, and I don't, I, maybe it's because I, I, you know, I love, I always focus on production of records. I'm obsessed with it, just choices people make. Yeah. But if I may just give a blanket note, like, remember how the Beatles reissued, uh, uh, not, I'm sorry, I'm blanking, Let It Be, but without Phil Spector's strings? Yeah. Like the stringless. I would like to reissue Lucky Town without any gospel singers, just remove. <laughs> All of the gospel singers on every chorus, and because Bruce's voice is really raw in Lucky Town, I love how uh, you know it's it sound it feels unfiltered in right. a lot of ways, and it's just destroyed by you know it you know when Billy Joel did the uh, in the middle of the night, like, right? It has that same like just why why are there gospel singers on every single song it seems well, and every chorus yeah and that rears its head too on lucky town on uh, a leap of faith there's the gospel yeah. choir in the background it's like yeah you're right i mean i don't know i mean it just i mean the the whole thing about this period is you you have this this heroic figure this guy who's made so many great records and like you said like really for me anyway from the first record up through tunnel of love Every record is an event. Every record is important and great. And then you get these two records where it just seems like, wow, Superman is now Clark Kent forever. Like he doesn't have any superpowers. He doesn't, his, his sense of taste has totally, you know, left him. And, uh, in, in, in all facets, like in the production style, you know, the song writing isn't as strong, you know, we were just talking about the cover of Lucky Town. One of the lasting legacies of this era unfortunately, is that Bruce lost the ability to have awesome album covers. Because, yeah. And that continued at, even after he started making good records again in the 21st century. Like, You're right. His album covers are always terrible. And you think about like 
how awesome does Born to Run look? How awesome does Darkness on the Edge of Town look? How? Oh my God! The cover he of Nebraska. Like a, yeah, he looks like a god in darkness. Like he is like and and Nebraska. How many hipsters took the note and did Polaroid black and white? I mean, I think I, I wish you know Nebraska again. I could talk about forever, but you know the I and I love the point you made about Superman because someone my age, I'm 35. Bruce, to me, growing up, was, like, indistinguishable from He-Man, you know, and G.I. Joe, or, you know, because my reference to Bruce as a six-year-old was my dad, you know, on the row machine in the basement watching MTV, and, you know, I, I thought Bruce literally was, like, a Saturday morning cartoon character of, like, this man is so strong, and he's so powerful, and his band is amazing, and they have... You know, his band, if you, you know, remembering the E Street Band as a kid, it was almost like watching all the characters on G.I. Joe. Like, you've got Sergeant Slaughter, and you've got, you know, all these different, you know, Clarence is huge compared to Bruce. And, you know, and it was, it's difficult for, because that hasn't left me. Bruce still is a superhero to me. And it's strange to experience these records. And like you said, here, you know, and, everybody's going to make mistakes. Everybody, I've made bad records. You know, everybody makes bad records. And I, I might have a little bit more forgiveness, you know, because it's, because I know it's coming to me or it already has come to me with, you know, things of critics disagreeing or not liking what you do. And it just, it just feels like a big stumbling point. And I, I wonder if he even cared his, well, I think his kids were going to kindergarten at the time. And, you know, it was like, he was like, all right, oh, cool. I didn't get good reviews. You know, my daughter was just born or something. Right. Hey, guys, we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. I just want to tell you about something I'm really excited about, which is the release of my new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It comes on May 8th, and it's available wherever you like to buy books. Twilight of the Gods is a book about rock stars and how they all seem to be retiring or even dying right now. If you're like me, you grew up listening to Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Beatles, and The Stones, even though it had been years, even decades, since those groups were in their primes or even still together. How has this music endured for so long and appealed to new generations of fans? What is the attraction of classic rock culture, and what impact did it have on the world? And what will happen to that music now that so many stars are exiting the stage permanently? I'll attempt to answer all those questions in this book, along with offering in-depth analysis of my favorite Bob Seger songs, my least favorite Neil Young albums, and the scariest David Bowie cocaine binges of the 1970s. Also, for you Springsteen fans, there's a lot of stuff about Bruce in the book, too. So please check out my book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, when it comes out May 8th. Okay, let's get back to the episode. I mean, to kind of get back to what you were saying about, you know, realizing that he's this infallible person, that he's just a regular guy. Like, to me, yeah. that's the that's also the appeal of these albums, like, kind of retro- retrospectively, that, you know, I, I mean, I always talk about the idea of a good, bad album. The idea, the, an album that you know, sort of on its face, isn't very good because the songs don't work or the production is bad or, like, the person involved maybe wasn't fully engaged with the project. But if it's a person who's a genius who does that, there's a fascination yeah. with those records because you, in a way, if you listen to Lucky Town, you can kind of figure out why Nebraska is so good because you could, or, or I guess Human Touch would be good a better example. Point. But it's like, okay, what, you know, like what works so well on Born in the USA? Well, I'm going to listen to Human Touch and see what doesn't work, and then that yeah. kind of illuminates like what. So I think if you're a fan of an artist like that, you know, a good bad record can be like a good skeleton key into figuring out like why you love them so much. So I always, so, so, so to me, that's what kind of makes these records uh, so fascinating. But, you know, to, I think you bit, but to go back to your point about like, did Bruce even care? You know, I think there is something to be said at this point in his career that like there were other things in his life other than music that when in the seventies and in the eighties, really uh, for most of the eighties anyway, you know, he was unmarried. He was yeah. obsessed with songs. Like he would, he was a loner, you know, so he would just go off and write songs by himself. And that was his entire life. And that's why his songs were so good uh, in part because he didn't think about anything else. And then you get yeah. older and how could it be your number one priority? Like when you're married and you have kids, I mean, that's, 
obviously making records and writing songs is going to maybe go down a couple notches after that. And uh, it's an interesting point, I think, for any artist's career. Yeah, and it's hard, it's, it's hard to fault him, you know, and I think what he did was, and it's interesting that he didn't, there was a lot of new themes on Tunnel of Love. There was a lot of new themes that didn't exist on Born in the USA even. Right. You know, and it was, you know, there was some, there was an adult, there was a sad adulthood that existed on Tunnel of Love that I was always drawn to. And I think he tried to keep these motifs going. And oftentimes, you know, again, I'd never heard Lucky Town. And I, I'm absolutely honest about that. Like, so when I was listening to Lucky Town for the first time, I was constantly writing other songs, Bruce songs, while hearing the Lucky Town songs. Like, the title track, Lucky Town, it sounds like a reworking of Downbound Train right. and even the river. And you get these glimpses. And that's such a good point you made of the fact that this is almost a great, uh, what do they call it in chemistry when you have the, the thing that doesn't change? It's uh, um, when you're doing like an experiment, you have not a standard, but oh, I, I for, the, oh, the control, I the, name, the control, the control. Yeah. So this, you know, these two records are almost, a really cool thing to put in those at equation of like, yes, I have lucky town and somehow I can put on downbound train and feel so much more love for downbound train now, <laughs> because you kind of go back to that original glowing source of where his, some of his songs come from, or you listen to like Atlantic city and because he often has these songs where it's like a couple, it's two people, either a man or a woman or friends who are like on some kind of like disastrous journey. <laughs> and, you know, those exist, those exist a lot in Tom Jode we'll get to, but you know, I, I just listened to Lucky Town again, and I don't mean to keep going back, just get rid of the gospel singers. It's real rough, but um, I love how Lucky Town ends. I love everything from Big Muddy all the way to the end. Like the Big Muddy is a weird song right. compared to everything you've heard up and to that point, you know, and living proof is like, I don't know. Like it sounds like from Big Muddy, somebody like upped the budget for the record <laughs> or, and it, it suddenly sounds a lot more like wide spectrum sounding. And it's real interesting. I was, because I had this thought of like, what if Lucky Town became an EP and it was like a five song EP? It would be really good, you know, if you choose some of these songs, you know, Big Muddy, Living Proof. I don't mind Book of Dreams. Like, right. Souls of the Departed is a strange, like, it's truly like a, like, if Bruce would make, you know, like a psych record, but with 90s technology, you know, it's just a, you know, it's a really interesting way to end it, you know, and Beautiful Award is a great way to end a record. You right. know, I, and it was just strange. Like, I, maybe I was more drawn to the, you know, because a lot of times even the songs are good at the beginning of Lucky Town, and his vocals, like I said, are really uh, pronounced and raw and emotive, but the music at the beginning of the record feels like a MIDI version of bruce springsteen like right. and you can feel the life getting and randy jackson does a great job on bass like i think he plays bass on a lot of these i have a newfound you know respect for him but it really feels so sterile right and you know max weinberg kind of messes up sometimes and it's awesome like there's this like running to the finish line with the e street band that's so perfect and you don't know some guys get there before the others, you know, and some guys want to be louder than the other. You know, it's really such an awesome character study, and that just gets sucked out of the room with the playing on Lucky Town. And you've got Bruce kind of singing over like a karaoke track of what, you know, <laughs> a version of what the E Street Band once was. Right, right. All right, so... Let's move on to Ghost of Tom Joad, but before we do that, I think we should just do a, a quick shout-out 
to Streets of Philadelphia, which was, you know, he won the yeah. Oscar for that song in between these albums that came out in 94. Um, and that was sort of like a more modern, I guess, bruise, or at least like, you know, sort of more 90 sounding maybe than, uh, than Human Touch was certainly. And that song, I mean, that still holds up for me. I like that song. I love that song. I love, I love that and Neil Young's song, Philadelphia. Yeah. Both from that. I mean, they're both, gorgeous songs and you know i i feel like bruce maybe in that the process of letting go of human touch and lucky town he he might have let go of some of that youth that he was holding on to with those two records and i feel like he's much more age appropriate in a great way with streets of philadelphia and and like yeah totally And, and in a way too it kind of feels like a transition a bit to ghost of, of go to ghost of Tom Joe. I mean, not so much sonically, but like uh, Streets of Philadelphia is a is a character song. It's a you know first yeah. person character, and and of course Ghost of Tom Joe is all character songs. Yeah, and um, you know, whereas I think Human Touch and Lucky Town were much more sort of first person, like him writing about his own life in a fairly direct way uh, on those records, Maybe, more so than even on Tunnel of Love. You know, yep. where Tunnel of Love has character songs on there, like Cautious Man and, and some of the other things on there. Um, uh, Ghost of Tom Joe, to me, is, a, is, is an interesting record in that it took me the longest time uh, to get into this album. And, oh, and, interesting. And it, it, it's funny because I feel like now this record has a really good reputation, especially among uh, songwriters. Like, I know Jason Isbell has tweeted that this is like his favorite Springsteen record. And, and it gets name-checked a lot, uh, I think, because of the lyrics. It's like some of his strongest lyrics, I think, on any album. Uh, especially, I mean, if you were into the storytelling aspect of Bruce Springsteen, mm-hmm. this is arguably his strongest album. Um, you know, it's up there with Nebraska, uh, yeah. just purely on a storytelling level. Because, you know, to me, like, you you have to look at the lyric sheet when you're listening to this record. Uh, oh, of course. Because they're like stories. You know, I think what was difficult for me is that, musically speaking, it's very threadbare. Some songs, there's barely any music at all. And that's intentional because it's a very hushed record, very softly played record. But it's an album that if you just throw it on, it recedes into the background incredibly quickly. And it, yeah, it, it, to compare too to, quickly. Well, yeah, and to compare it to Nebraska, Nebraska has these awesome lyrics, but it also has forceful performances and really strong tunes. Like Atlantic City has a great tune. Yep. Johnny 99 yep. is really enthusiastically performed. And Tom Joad has very little in the way of dynamics. It's a very sort of flat-sounding record in terms of how it was recorded. Um it's funny because what helped me get into this album, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but like the, on the Live Springsteen site, there was a concert release from 1996 that he played on the Tom Joad tour in Dublin. Really? Yeah, it's an amazing... It's one oh, of the, I'd lo- I haven't heard that. I, uh, you got to get um, that. It's like, I think it's one of the best shows that they've released on there. And yeah. it helped bring out the songs for me because he does perform those songs with a little more force, still quiet, still very controlled, um, but I think they were, they kind of come alive a little bit more than they do on the record. Cause I think there are, uh, a lot of amazing songs on this album. Um, well, I, I mean, personally speaking, you know, and I, I love the fact that Jason, you said Jason Isbell, uh, because this feels, this feels similar to like when, when Jason, uh, kind of, you know, has a song like Elephant or, you know, those character studies that, are so rewarding if you focus deeper and deeper into the details. Right. You know, they're, they're not going to hit you over the head like, uh, you know, like a pop song should. And, you know, I, I personally think um, this, this is probably my third most listened to Bruce Springsteen record or fourth. You know, I, and I, like, on the record itself, it has, I, I'll say it right now, I think Highway 29 is my favorite Bruce song. Like, I, I still get teary-eyed when I hear him go into the bridge, you know, and he's, you know, the, the storytelling is so good. And, 
I feel like maybe this is a, a bogus theory, but because they're character-driven songs, it's okay for a middle-aged, extremely rich person to sing these songs. Like, they can feel alive because you always wonder, like, how do you... Someone like Springsteen was always longing. He was always searching. He said he was a loner. You know, he was writing Born to Run because he felt it. And what happens when you get everything? Like, you get so much success and you're so ever-present in society. I think where songs truly come alive is when he, you know, he's writing about a Hispanic man working at a methamphetamine lab. Like, that's <laughs> fucking crazy. Yeah, like, you just referenced the song Sinaloa Cowboys, which is yes. one of my favorite songs on the record. It's I, I gorgeous. Mean, I mean, like, this, you know, and I think the, th- the, th- the thing with this record is I almost wonder, like, if Bruce should have written a book of short stories. Because to me, that's what this album feels like. Yeah. It, it feels yep. like short stories, sometimes even more than songs. Even though, like, I think now I've come around in this record and I really love it. And by the way, like, you, you mentioned Highway 29. That's, like, one of my favorite songs on the record, too. Oh, I love it. You have to, I... get, you have to get that Dublin show. Yeah. Because I, I, I can't, the I performance can't that. of that on that in that show is, is un- unbelievable. And, um, but the, the Sinaloa Cowboys, you mentioned that, like how, I mean, that feels like a movie when you hear that. It does. Song. It, yeah. In a way that the Nebraska songs do. And, and a lot of Bruce Springsteen songs are very cinematic, but, um, these songs in particular, I mean, where, I mean, Balboa Park, like right. Balboa Park is, I just wrote tragic, tragic, tragic. <laughs> well, on my notes, like it's just gripping. When you start hearing, and, you know, I, I feel like it's such a strong point you made about the short stories, because this is just, like, I'm a huge fan of John Steinbeck. And not only the, you know, the Tom Joad reference, but, like, it reminds me of, like, especially his focus on, like, uh, kind of California border Mexican culture, you know, and reading books like Tortilla Flat, and to a God unknown. And there's all this kind of like, you know, kind of really mystic level of, you know, this culture that exists. And, you know, even like, I've always been fascinated by that particular zone of, you know, there's such a wealth of stories from it. And yeah, I mean, I, I would be fine just reading the lyrics and, you know, there's, he still will hit you though with those changes. Right. I think Bruce is the king of the bridge yes. where you've, you've heard and he's, you know, throughout his whole career, you know, downbound train when it, like he jumps back into this like flowing stream of conscious lyric, you know, piece towards the middle end. And he still does this so many times on Tom Joad where, like you said, it's kind of, it's not melody less, but it's, it's lacking or he doesn't, he doesn't really see the need to like have like a gigantic soaring melody or choruses, but he will hit you over the head with bridges sometimes. And he'll go to this minor chord shift that just breaks your heart. And, 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 uh, and again, going back to Jason Isbell, that's what he does on, you know, songs like if we were vampires and, you know, he'll have those modal shifts where you're hearing a chord and then just with like a single note on the guitar, he'll go minor. And that's enough to just melt you. Even if you don't know it's a minor chord, you feel it so strongly. Right, right. And I think that stuff is all there. And I think it's there to be appreciated, but it's not going to grab you by the lapels and no. pull you into the record like every other Bruce Springsteen record does. I mean, in a way, this, no. this album is sort of like the movie star who does this really grungy indie film, you know, like he's, yeah. not, he's not going to make the, you know, he's not making like the blockbusters this time, you know, this is like, um, you know, like Steven Spielberg doing like Schindler's list or something, <laughs> you know, go yeah, from Jurassic like- Park to Schindler's list. And I, I also feel like too, that this record, it was kind of the culmination of him reacting uh, to the success of born in the USA, because you mm. have tunnel of love, I think, which, was a deliberate scaling down. You have Human Touch and Lucky Town, which I think 
were attempts to sort of regain what he did at that time or to make a record in that vein and, and, and maybe learning that he, that he couldn't do that anymore. And then going in the total opposite direction and making a record like this, which is very dense lyrically, like very dense. I, I don't know if you've noticed this. If you look at the liner notes, there's actually a bibliography <laughs> yeah, these lyrics. Yep, I remember He's, the CD. Yeah, he cites sure. he cites magazine articles from the LA Times. He cites the Grapes of Wrath, of course, by you know, the John Ford film, um, and he references like a couple of books. And of course, he was traveling a lot at that time, like doing a lot of motorcycle trips. So like he was traveling around that area, the border between California and, and Mexico. Um, so I don't know if he was doing like first person journalism, you know, to write these yeah. songs. But super dense lyrically songs, musically sort of the opposite of the born in the USA model, you know, you know, like we're not going to engage you at all. Like there, there, there are melodies here, but they're, they're almost subliminal. The music is almost subliminal yeah. on this record. And then after he made this, it, it was almost like, okay, maybe I can get back to these. I can get back with the East street band at the end of the decade. And he like, got out of his system. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, you know, and, and this is just a completely side point to everything, but it should be mentioned I'm really nervous that most people's jumping in point to Ghost of Tom Jode, the whole the whole concept of it, is one of the lowest points of my life when I saw Tom Morello play uh, <laughs> with Bruce and he did his kind of vinyl scratching thing on his guitar. Yeah. And it was to Ghost of Tom Jode. And being a fan of that record for so long, watching that, I... I cried, but not in a good way. I just, was, you know, as a fan of the guitar, guitar pedals, music in general, that just was a, that was a big sin in my book. That was, so I, I hope people understand that, like, don't just take it from Tom Morello's thing. And, and it was kind of cute that Bruce liked Tom Morello so much. Like, I, I found it very charming, but it just, God, it, it took a good, because that's a good song. It's a cool way to start a record, right. you know, with this. But um, I, I, I do find it, you know, and I think, you know, whereas I don't know what he thought of Lucky Town or Human Touch, I, you know, if I could project onto the boss, I feel like he was proud when he was finished with Ghost of Tom Jones. Like, this is a real, this is an accomplishment of a record. Right. You know, and it, it feels like something you could finish and actually feel like, I didn't phone it in. I, you know, it wasn't, you know, it just was a real, you know, I hope he was proud because it was a, it's just, I, I find it just from a lyric standpoint, a gorgeous, gorgeous record. Yeah, me too. And, I mean, when I was, I was listening to this record a lot in the last few days, getting ready to talk to you, and I was like, I want someone to turn this album into like an anthology TV show, like where yeah. there's like an episode, like a, like a dark mirror, but it's Ghost of Tom Joad, where you get, like, I want to see Straight Time as like a movie, Ooh, which, by, yes. which by the way, I, I was researching this and I couldn't find any confirmation of it. Th there's a Dustin Hoffman movie from 1978 called Straight Time where he plays um, uh, an ex-convict, a guy who gets out of prison and he's like trying to stay on the straight and narrow. And, Interesting. It, and it's, there's some similarities between that movie and the story of Straight Time, it's not exactly the same, but I was trying to find out like if Bruce saw that movie and like wrote a song about it or was inspired, but I didn't see any confirmation of that. But like if if you are a fan of this record, seek out Straight Time in the film. Like it's sort of like a weird like uh, parallel to this album. But um, yeah, I, I want to see like a Highway Twenty Nine movie. I want to see a well. Didn't Sonola, Sonola, Sonola? Is that how you pronounce it? I think so. Sonola. Sonola Cowboys is basically just alluding to Breaking Bad eventually. Like, right. dude should have gotten writing credit for, like, kind of piquing the interest of, like, the tragic lives of the methamphetamine world. Like, right. I had never... I At that point, I didn't even know what methamphetamine was, you know, in 95, but even for years later, up until Breaking Bad, that was kind of the, the first public offering of, like, life in the underbelly of, like, crystal meth world. Right, yeah, and it's an amazing... I mean that is an amazing ending. And the line, right? Or, or excuse, yeah, the line. It's it's. <laughs> I find that like I feel like I want all of those fucking Trump supporters to hear the line <laughs> and understand that like they're like, you know, all of this stuff. Like this feels really relevant too about this horrific talk of the wall 
and all of these things that are going on and the stories that people have to go through and the, the, just the survival and the perseverance that, you know, some people on this, you know, Tom Joad and, you know, all of that feels like, you know, again, he's a rich guy that's, you know, a rock star, but he's still kind of, there's a lot of empathy when it comes to his characters. And, you know, I think the line, especially how I didn't think that song was going to end up the way it did. Right. Like, and I really like the fact of like, that's, that's prime storytelling right there. Well, and I when think, you're, yeah, I mean, it, totally. It, I, I was just going to say that you were talking about the, the rock star thing. I, I feel like, on this record, you know, as opposed to maybe his, his previous records where he was writing maybe more about New Jersey or, or things that were closer to his own life, that like when you hear this record, you, you there's a clear separation, I think, between Springsteen, yeah. the artist, and, and the characters he's writing about. I mean, John Darnielle and I talked about this during the Tunnel of Love episode about how when you write about characters, you know, listeners sometimes conflate you with the characters in your songs. And that's always been a thing with Springsteen that people feel like, well, he's writing about the common man. So then he's the common man. And sometimes people, yeah. sometimes people fault him for that because he's not the common man. He's a rock star. But on this song, I think he's doing something actually very righteous, which is putting himself in the place of people who are very much unlike him, which are these Mexican migrant yep. workers. And also he's writing the about petty stories criminals. aren't being, I mean, their stories were not being told in 95. Right. I mean, I mean, they were to a certain extent, but I think it's bold and, and pretty cool that he took the time to, you know, because he could always go back to the New Jersey well right. and be like, you know, the mechanic was laboring. Oh, you know, like, he got it. You know, we, we know about that mechanic. We've heard about them. It's just, and it feels kind of like, I don't know, it feels exciting for him to sing about. It's kind of like when you watch a television show and they're not, they like go out of their normal setting. Yeah. And like, you know, if you're watching like Seinfeld and like, what's he doing in the subway? This is weird. Like, it's kind of fun. Like, it's cool to see Bruce like go into like the the high desert country for a while and think yeah. about that. And I think it really does bring out, again, that how great of a writer he is. Because I think yes. on those early albums, people might have been like, oh, he's just writing about himself or, you know, they don't feel like, it may be easier to overlook the artistry of the writing. And I think on this record, and maybe that was deliberate to some degree on his part, like to be a very, to take a very overtly sort of literary style of writing, but it's so evocative and it's so rich yeah, and, like, and... and it's so visual. I mean, you just see these songs play out in your head. Um, and again, I mean, I think, you know, musically, I think, and also in the performances on the record, I feel like, again, I wish it was a little more dynamic. I wish he, exactly. I wish he could have teased out, the songs a little bit more. I think he was very deliberately playing it down, maybe as a reaction to his previous work, want, you know, not wanting to kind of do the same things he always did, which I understand. But I think at times it doesn't serve the songs as well as he, as he could have. But as an act of writing, I, I think it goes up with any album he ever made. Yeah, and I mean, this is bold, and it might be, I might regret saying this a minute later, as I typically do with things that I say. But... I think this might have been the last original Bruce Springsteen record because all the stuff he put out after it, if I'm not mistaken, just kind of sounded like Bruce's greatest hits, even though they're new songs. Right. Like when you listen to The Rising, it's almost like he learned the formula of what makes Bruce great <laughs> and he lived within that palette. Right. And I think this was something where. You know, keep in mind, this is coming from the same artist who put out The River and the next record he put out, Nebraska. Like, that's of the equivalence of OK Computer to Kid A, in my opinion. Like, right. that's a huge, bold, risky-ass artistic step. Similar to, you know how many record label people and stuff were just waiting and hoping, like, you know, what's Bruce's album going to be? It's 95, we're waiting, and he shows up and he's like, here's my record. It's somehow more elusive and mysterious than Nebraska <laughs> and, you know, less melodic. And, you know, I think that's, you know, it might, and I know he did Devils and Dust. I'm, I'm not quite, I've never really listened to that that much. But it seems kind of like the trilogy of Ghost of Tom Joad or whatever. But. No, I mean, I think you're right. And I think that's a really good point. And it's a good way to end this series, I think, is that this was kind of the last 
record that was wholly unexpected. I, I think yep. he made good records. He made a lot of good records in the 21st century, but he, I don't think it was ever anything that wasn't uh, what you wouldn't... It, there, there were no huge surprises. In, in a way, it all kind of stems from his work uh, in the 20th century, uh, You know, even the really good stuff. Um, but yeah, I think... Tom Joad is is a really fascinating kind of capstone on a on a part of his career, you know. And yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's a massive, you know, it's a massive catalog. And I love artists like that because. And I think you brought this up. Can I be really nerdy and quote something else that you talked about from Celebration Rock? Yeah, she go ahead. Like, can, can I in reference your own podcast? <laughs> well, when I thought you made a great point when you're talking to Dan Behar. Uh, from Destroyer about Bob Dylan, where sometimes it's good to like, you know, you get, it's a huge catalog. Like, dig in, see what you can find. Even if it's not rewarding, like, just check it out. Like, listen to some of those weird Neil Young records. You know, like the the kind of Republican record he put out, Old Ways. You yeah. know, like, put that one on just for the hell of it. You know, put on Live at Budokan with Dylan. Try it out and. You know, it's. You know, I think that's what was really uh, enlightening for this talk we've had is the idea of like I would never in my life have listened to Human Touch or Lucky Town all the way through, let alone like three times, <laughs> and tried to figure out what, what or why or how these records were created. Well, I'm glad I made you do it, man. And I'm glad Thank I made you. myself do it, Tim. It's always a pleasure talking with you. I, I, All right, that, Steve. Thanks, great, man. man. I, I love being on this. This is great. All right, man. Well, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, that was me and Tim Showalter looking at Bruce Springsteen in the 90s. Uh, again, you know, if you don't take anything else from this episode, I would, again, implore you to get that show of, of Bruce performing in Dublin in 1996. One of my very favorite Bruce Springsteen recordings, I think, of... Uh, you know, either live or on a record. Uh, I really love that show. I think you guys would like it too if you haven't heard it yet. As always, got to do a shout out to Derek Madden, the man who puts all these episodes together. Also got to do a shout out to Josh Copperman, the man who wrote our theme song. Thank you both. And uh, I want to thank you guys for listening. You know, this was a great experience going through Bruce Springsteen's albums. And the response was really wonderful from our listeners. Um, and it's just gratifying, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to put these podcasts together and knowing that we have such a great audience uh, out there makes it all worthwhile. So so thank you for your support. Uh, you are what makes this podcast possible. So thank you for telling your friends about us, expanding our audience, leaving reviews of the podcast on iTunes. Uh, these are all vital things that help us keep going and doing more episodes. Uh, and we will have more episodes Coming up, we are done with the Bruce Springsteen series. We are resuming our regularly scheduled programming, uh, but we have some great episodes in the can already. Uh, so I'm excited to uh, show those off for you guys. I think you're all going to really enjoy it. Uh, thanks again for listening to the Celebration Rock Podcast. We'll uh, talk to you guys next week. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.